0: You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast.
1: You're listening to episode 389, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. Exactly one year ago, Jason Taylor was on the show on episode 341. Recently, Jason was promoted to DevOps lead, a text us from principal engineer. Welcome back to the show, Jason.
0: Hey Brittany. Thanks for having me back. I can't believe it's been a year already.
1: (laughs) What a wild year it's been. I want to take some time and just talk about your promotion. And I really want to have a discussion at first just about titles, because titles are just so weird. And I know that you and I went back and forth about you. know We knew you were going to get this promotion and you needed to come up with a title. So how did you land on the current title that you have?
0: Well, I kind of landed on the title that we started out with, which is DevOps Lead. I was a little bit hesitant to use the term DevOps because I think it's one of those terms in our industry that means a lot of different things. Since it's supposed to be the marrying of development and operations and having developers take a more active role in doing the operations for their applications, it seems like less of a separate role. So I think for a title for a set of roles, it seems a little odd, but I think we decided between that and like engineering operations and Technology operations and a bunch of different terms like that. But I think at the end of the day, most people have a clear idea-ish of what developer operations means, more or less.
1: Yeah, I remember we tried to be fancy. We're like, why don't we just do the full words and do developer operations? And I was like, no, no one's ever going to say that.
0: Yeah. And my discussions with our boss had ended up with him saying, well, people are just going to shorten that anyway when they say it. So I was like, that's a good point.
1: <laughs> totally. And I will tell you, I have been getting so much spam into my inbox lately because I'm currently engineering lead at Texas and I started off as engineering lead comma backend. But then mm-hmm. when I took over managing the front end feature team, it just became engineering lead. So, I get a lot of spam where they're like, you must be the exact person I'm trying to talk to. And I'm like, really? Yeah. From two words, (laughs) you got that. But I've
0: I've noticed my spam has changed from people trying to recruit me to go work on something to people trying to reach out to me to either sell me a tool or have me talk to somebody they're recruiting for. So, it's like people have figured out I'm in management now, I suppose.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of, so what has changed in your world since you got promoted? I think the
0: biggest difference is less focus on like day to day task and story solving and like actually writing code and more focus on like what's coming up in the future. So like what are we doing three months from now? What are we doing six months from now? And how do we prepare to be ready to do that work in time? Because, especially because my role is about managing like the operations of our application. You have to be out ahead of the rest of the feature flow on a lot of that stuff so that infrastructure is ready to go by the time we need it. I think that biggest difference is just more strategic thinking and actually not feeling bad spending time on that <laughs> before it felt like I was wasting time.
1: <laughs> not at all. But I mean, you did definitely have a reputation at Texas for being the fixer. So being able to take on really difficult and weird bugs that were very deep in the stack, be it Elasticsearch, Redis, something like that, and be able to fix them. And now you're really helping to orchestrate, hey, maybe this tool is out of date, maybe we should be using a different tool. So it just feels like you're in a better place to make those decisions, right?
0: Yeah, I think so. It's like, I'm able to take like a higher level, more holistic view of everything and kind of see the larger connections and pull that stuff together. And then also have budget visibility, which is huge for tool selection.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, so huge. We are looking at a tool right now. We have a requirement where we want to convert MS Word documents into PDF. One of my feature front-end developers looking into this, and I was like, by the way, like for a good solution, we can pay for it. While open source is so important, sometimes for some things that you need to do, you need to pay for it and you need to make a budget for it. So it's definitely interesting trade-offs though, because some things as you can get very expensive very quickly.
0: Yeah, it's definitely about trade-offs. And I think being able to see like before as a, as an individual contributor, I would know like how much this tool costs and how much that tool costs, but being able to see them all on the same spreadsheet and go this like tool a, we get a ton of value out of this and it's, you know, a thousand dollars a month or whatever. And tool B three people use it and it's twice as expensive or whatever it is. And adding those things together, even if they do different functions, it really makes a clear case for the value of what the tool is. So it's been interesting.
1: I love the fact that you're not only looking at tooling for the actual production applications that we need to maintain, but you're also kind of in charge of the tooling around developer happiness. You made the effort to get Tuple for the entire developer team. And so far, I think the feature developers have really loved it.
0: Yeah, it's been great. We were doing a bunch of pairing on Zoom before, and I think just having a tool that is actually made for pairing is so much nicer. You definitely notice less fatigue over time using it when you're in a pairing session. So, but I think like making sure that developers have comfortable workspace and a comfortable set of tools that make their jobs easier and it makes it easier to work together, especially as a remote team is one of those huge value added things that improves productivity. And it's like, Always hard to draw that to a direct dollar amount, but happy people are productive people. And so I think anything we can do to keep the team happy and have like a nice working environment as much as possible is something that pays dividends in the long run, for sure.
1: I couldn't agree more. So one thing that you and I definitely tackle, we are both pretty much well-trained within Ruby on Rails. Like we're definitely coming from the back end experience, but both of our roles have responsibility over the front end. And so how fluent in the stack do you need to be in order to make operational decisions?
0: It depends on the decision. So for me, yeah, I've had a lot of experience kind of deploying like the classic Rails stack with everything from Heroku to Capistrano on individual servers back in the day. But adding in things like modern JavaScript build pipelines or AWS and like the larger set of cloud tools that aren't necessarily part of the classic Rails stack has been a lot of learning for me. So I find myself being pulled in multiple directions because there's on one hand, I'm like, well, we have a React front end. I need to go learn more about those build tools so that I'm sure that that build pipeline is efficient and that we're using like Webpack and things like that properly. But I'm also like, I want to dig into the AWS and cloud tools more and see like, what could we be using over there? Because there's so many interesting tools being built on that side too, like, that's somehow deeper in the back end. And so there's always more stuff to learn. So I think that the most important skill I would say is less about the fluency of it and more about just being willing to pick it up and try and learn it and just poke at it until you've kind of figured it out.
1: This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Honey Badger. Honey Badger is exception, uptime and cron monitoring all in one place and easily installed in your web app. Deploy with confidence and be your team's DevOps hero. For me, I'm often the first person on the engineering team reading the bug reports that customer support submits. My first step is always to tab over to HoneyBadger, find the error, identify the culprit, and sign the bug to a developer. HoneyBadger has made us so much more confident in shipping new features. If you're not reading their blog, you absolutely have to. They have tons of Ruby-specific content, but I love how they cater content to each stack they support. And if you're like me, you've been eagerly watching the updates on their new product, Hook Relay, so you can have webhooks as awesome as Stripes. To dive into all of this, head on over to honeybadger.io. As the listeners know, I was working at the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust before I came to Texas, and my best friend still works there. She messaged me today and told me that they're moving to Kubernetes and Docker, and I'm just like, oh my God, it's the entire world. Moving to containers, do I really need to get well versed on this? Because at this point, I am not well versed on it at all.
0: Especially something like Kubernetes, there's so much to know there. Because once you get into having to know networking and all kinds of things, it's kind of amazing. Like we definitely have the easy button a little bit with Heroku on not having to learn all the orchestration tools, but there's trade offs for sure. Because you can do so much with Kubernetes. I'm right there with you. I'm like, okay, when am I going to need to learn this kind of? <laughs>
1: I also struggle with, say, I need to do something where I need to convert a document. Should I be putting that into a Rails application code or should I be doing that in Lambda? Like, How much of this should I be offloading to AWS? And then how dependent on AWS am I becoming? My last job, we used 34 different services from AWS and Texas isn't nearly as coupled to AWS as they are, but I mean, we do use a decent amount. So curious what you think on that front. I'm always torn on how much
0: to be concerned about like vendor lock-in, for lack of a better word, (laughs) because like on the one hand, I was reading like a Twitter thread probably a while back that people were discussing like, well, how much should you try to build sort of a cloud agnostic solution so you can switch between something like AWS and Google or Azure or whatever? And how much do you want to just pick one and use it? Because... Those companies that are building the cloud are building tools that are trying to like differentiate for them based on what all the clouds offer you. And so I think if you try too hard to be cloud agnostic, then you take away the opportunities to use some of the nice specific toolings that someone like AWS is building that might solve a really specific problem for you in a really convenient way. And so I think it's like build interfaces where you can plug and play as much as possible, but I'm not sure I'm totally concerned about vendor lock in if a tool really fits the problem it's trying to solve.
1: I think that makes a lot of sense. So, I'd love to talk about your goal for Q4. So, Texas tends to outline many OKRs that we try to hit, and one of your goals for Q4 is to implement some sort of telemetry solution. So, first off, we'd like to define what telemetry means to, you know, us developers.
0: So for us right now, I think we're trying to keep it really simple. (laughs) Our first goal here is just who's using our API and where is that traffic coming from? So that's all I'm trying to answer right now because we have some rough ideas of it. But to be able to like reliably answer that question, I think we don't quite have that data in any one place. And so the main thing I'm looking at to try and solve this is a project called Open Telemetry, where they're trying to build an open standard for how to do essentially structured logs and events and to do like distributed tracing ultimately so basically we use honeycomb as the front end of this to be able to view the traces and they are moving towards open telemetry companies like amazon are using open telemetry and it seems like a lot of the industry is kind of starting to move that in terms of how to instrument a distributed application to figure out what's going on in production essentially and so I'm trying to implement that in our stack. We use the honeycomb, they call them honeycomb bee lines, which is their proprietary ruby library to get the traces over there, but we're moving over to the open telemetry stuff cuz I think it will open up some more tools we can use like more interesting sampling algorithms and the ability to proxy the same telemetry events to multiple locations after they're collected from the application running, so We're kind of early on in that, but it's pretty exciting, I think, for the industry to have like a standard way to sort of track how your application is running in production.
1: I think it's exciting because I don't love having a dependency on Google Analytics. I don't think it's the Mm -hmm. best tool for the job. Uh And really our goals are online, Jason, like I'm trying to delete code. And I know as a DevOps lead, you would also like to see me delete code Uh because we have old implementations of things that we try to deprecate. And we have just like one very vocal customer that gets upset about us deprecating something. And the reason is that we didn't know people were using it. And so if we have the data and we can say, hey, customer, actually, you're the only one using that. We have the data here that proves it. They're going to be like, oh, okay. And then we migrate them onto the new thing and we can deprecate the old thing.
0: Yeah. And especially if we can use that to say like, hey, in two months, we're going to deprecate this and you're the only one that uses it. So can we work with you on a way to do this in a different way? I think it's value added for customers and your business and your engineering team, ultimately, because... If we can run the application in production more easily and know what's happening and be able to ask interesting questions about it without having to go write specific code to track that specific thing when we want to know the question, it's really powerful.
1: I totally agree. And when I'm interviewing engineers, you know, I'm explaining them our backend, which is pretty straightforward. We do use the dry suite of gems, which is fairly unusual, but Mm -hmm. really I'm telling them that we essentially have five different front ends. We have the Chrome Mm -hmm. extension, the mobile application, the UI, a Salesforce application, and then, of course, the API itself. People use those five things very differently. And so being Mm -hmm. able to have that data and make good decisions around it is something that I'm just really excited to have.
0: I find that, interestingly, like the API itself is the front-end, quote-unquote, that I think people always forget about, right? Because you just think, oh, it's an API, especially if you're making that available for customers to use. Like That is also a front-end, right?
1: It totally is. All they have to do is generate a token and they can just get started with it. So I truly believe that we have customers that are very dependent on our API. And because we're so cognizant of not breaking it, that is one of my favorite things about TextUs is that when we get a ticket saying that we've broken our API, the answer is always, well, we consume our own API. So we would be the first to notice if we actually broke this endpoint. But there's probably a ton of customers that are using it and are very dependent on it that we're just not aware of.
0: I think you get like resiliency out of that, too, because customers will always use it in a way you don't expect.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And I love when we get API requests because sometimes we just actually do have the endpoint already, but we've marked it as internal. Mm -hmm. And so that gives us time to evaluate. Maybe this should be an endpoint that's available to other customers. But are you doing it with the right intentions, if that makes sense?
0: Yeah. And like, is our documentation around what this is trying to provide good enough and all that?
1: So we have an entire crew headed to RubyConf. It just seems so weird to be going to an in-person conference, but I'm sure the organizers have all the safety protocols in place and whatnot. It'll just be exciting to meet so many people that I've formed relationships with over the last two years to get to see them in person. I think we have nine people from Texas Us going. I'm excited to see how many companies have big representation like that, just Mm -hmm. because I think there are so many Rails and Ruby powered companies out there that we're just not aware of. And so are there any sessions that you're particularly excited about? There
0: are a few sessions I'm excited about, but I would also say I've been a Ruby engineer for almost 11 years, and this is my first time a company is paying for me to go to a conference, which is super exciting as well. So thanks, Texas. But a couple of the sessions I'm really excited about are uh, one on the async Ruby gem. I think that's being one of the standard library gems now. It seems like they're doing a ton of interesting work on how to do truly concurrent threads and get pretty interesting performance out of doing things like web requests and stuff like that with asynchrony, all the asynchronous stuff that's being built into Ruby. So I'm interested to learn more about that for sure. Plus, I saw a tweet the other day from Samuel Williams saying they're building open telemetry tools into that gem, too. So that's exciting. And then the other one I'm most excited about because I'm an operations person is keeping developers happy with a fast CI. Always excited to learn how places like Shopify with these huge test suites run stuff for many hundreds or thousands of developers in a fast way and like how they deploy faster. I'm always interested in that.
1: I just can't believe they have 170,000 Ruby tests. Like, just when you go to write anything and you just kind of wonder, I wonder if we already have a test covering this. There's probably like 14 tests already covered.
0: Right. Or just, just how much code do they have to justify that many tests? It's, it's kind of mind boggling.
1: It really is mind boggling. This episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Scout APM. Scout is an industry leader in application performance monitoring. This low overhead tool is designed to help Ruby developers quickly find and fix performance issues without having to deal with the headache of enterprise platform feature bloat. With a super intuitive UI and tracing logic that ties bottlenecks to specific lines of code, you can quickly pinpoint and resolve issues like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's real-time alerting and weekly digest emails notify you when there's a problem so you can fix it before it reaches your customers. With unlimited seats and applications, Scout's transaction-based pricing model makes it easy for any developer to become a performance pro. See for yourself why software engineers worldwide call Scout their best friend with a free 14-day trial, no credit card needed. As a special offer for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open-source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash rubyonrails. You know, I have to mention two of the co-hosts of this show will be speaking there. So Gemma will be speaking with Jacob Evelyn and doing Achieving Fast Method Metaprogramming Lessons from Memoize. I know nothing about Memoize, so I am really excited to learn about this because it's benchmark driven development, which is something I need to get better at. So that should be a great talk.
0: I'm always interested in stuff that's uh, about the metaprogramming aspects of Ruby because I feel like that's... The parts of Ruby that I've never fully (laughs) gotten into because it's, you know, the more difficult pieces. So I'm always interested in that stuff, too.
1: Totally agreed. And then Nick Schwadower is bringing his talk from Ruby Kaiji, Ruby Archaeology, though, as he said on the show, he's actually going to be extending out that talk. And so it'll be kind of fun to attend that talk with you, Jason, just because you've been writing Ruby for so many years. It'll be fun to see where you can point to it and be like, oh, yeah, I remember when that happened. So that should be a lot of fun. (laughs)
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: I'm calling you an old man, but I'm not really calling you an old uh, man. I'll,
0: I'm definitely an old man. I started in with Ruby when 1.9 first came out. So <laughs> not as old as some, but older than most. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then, of course, our coworker Paul, who I've talked about many times on the show. And at some point I will course onto an episode. He is doing service objects with dry RB, monads and transactions. Text Us will definitely be the front row of that talk. I'm just excited to see Paul talk in person. He's so good at explaining his methodologies and I'm excited for more people to know about dry within the community.
0: He gave a version of this talk at our Boulder Ruby group a couple years ago and or a year, I don't know, whenever I started it. This is the talk that got me interested in working at Texas actually, so. <laughs> I uh, introduced myself to Paul after I heard this and tried to Google work there, so. That That's worked awesome.
1: Out. Well, I was going to ask you, you know, like what tends to be your Plan for a conference? Do you sit down and list out all the talks that you want to go to? Do you play it by ear? Do you like to go to workshops? Like what's your plan, Jason?
0: I definitely go through all the talks and find like the ones I'm interested in and say, like figure out what the schedule looks like and how many of those I can hit. But I don't usually have a firm plan, especially if I'm going with a group of people, because I will and try to see what people are interested in because I think we all talk about the hallway track but seeing the talks with your team and then having the conversations about the exciting ideas afterwards is most of the fun I think of a lot of these conferences so I definitely find the ones I'm interested in and but if people want to go to something else I'll go along for the fun talk
1: <laughs> I agree and I love that rubyconf has the ruby guide and scholar program I was very tempted to sign up as a guide again because I had so much fun doing it last time. But I looked over all the people who were coming with us from Texas and at least six of them have never been to a Ruby conference before. So in some ways, we're almost de facto guides of our own crew. So it kind of <laughs> works out.
0: <laughs> what did being a guide entail?
1: Oh, it was awesome. So you, they basically pair you with a scholar, someone who has been sponsored to come to RubyConf. And you get to know them like in a little bit of a session. And this is someone that you can always depend on that you're going to eat lunch with, grab breakfast with. And then you would outline which talks they wanted to go to and whether or not you wanted to come to them. And it was just someone that you could see in the hallway and like wave to and just check in on. And so I was just such a big fan of that because I remember when I was starting out in Ruby, people would always say, oh, the thing about the conferences, the talks are great, the workshops are great, the keynotes are great. But really, it's the hallway track. And I'm like, I don't know Mm -hmm. anybody like I'm not going to enjoy the hallway. And now I'm so stoked for that hallway. So if I can make that hallway a friendlier place, I'm all here for
0: it. That sounds like a great program, because one of the hardest things about these conferences is just like overcoming the social anxiety and just attempting to talk to people. We all work with computers, so we know what we're talking about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that the case? I try to remember, you know, all these talks were getting recorded. And so part of me, you know, wants to stay in the hallway and get to know other people and whatnot. But mm-hmm. also as a past speaker, it's important that you show up to these talks so that they have an audience to talk to. Mm-hmm. You want to have a very positive vibe. You want to be that person in the audience that's always nodding their head along because my God, does mm-hmm. that help? Like you want to be the nodder. Yeah, so- well,
0: I personally definitely get really invigorated from hearing how other people are using Ruby and how other people are doing their work and like trying to take those ideas back and like, you get all those ideas from the talks. So it's always fun to like go back to work after a conference and have all these new ideas about ways to try things out. So,
1: Yeah. How do you think we should handle that? Like, do you think we should have a retro like on the conference with the people who were there? Should we include people who weren't there? What's the best way to make sure that, you know, everything we learn isn't just tossed into a, a notebook and not looked at again?
0: I think a retro is probably a really good idea for that and see if we have like a couple of common ideas, excite the team and try to see if we can incorporate those somehow in future work we have coming up.
1: So write Uh, 170,000 Ruby tests as a uh, retro item.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that that one may be missing the point, but (laughs) I think just, yeah, figuring out like where that overlap is between like, here's a cool, exciting idea. And we could actually use this in our stack is like the most fun. Having a retro on what we've all learned from the conference and what people are excited about would be probably a great way to like build on that
1: excitement. I totally agree. So this is a shout out to the listeners. If you happen to spot me at RubyConf, like, please come up and say hi. And a really great way to be able to spot me is probably just from hearing my voice. But if you see me standing next to a very tall gentleman with fabulous hair, then I am probably with Jason. So please come over and please say hi.
0: I'm getting a haircut next week, so it should look good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Well, Jason, it is always so great to have you back on the show. I'm definitely going to have you back on again and excited to see you in person in Denver.
0: Oh, great. Thanks. It's nice to be on again. And I'll also say that Texas is hiring. So if you're interested in working with us at Texas.com slash jobs.
1: Love it. Perfect. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> we'll talk to you
0: later. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review and thank you for listening.